This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. A warning before we begin, this podcast is explicit in every way. And in this episode, the N-word can be heard multiple times. Mm, you know what song is? Three years old might seem like a really young age to put your son on the Biggie Smalls. But the way I see it, nothing could be more fun. Maybe that's the egotistical part of parenthood. The part that makes you feel like a mad scientist. Like, I get to be the first person to introduce this dude to hip-hop. This is crazy. Where do I begin? I got my answer when my wife bought him a Biggie t-shirt. I listen to the other B.I.G. song. Okay, the other B.I.G. song. You want to listen to this one? No, that's not the B.I.G. song. That's not the one you want to hear. I really like this one. You don't want it? My mom is Grammy. She'd already had him deep diving into Motown. Stopping the Name of Love was one of his most requested bad time jams for a hot minute. Even my wife's granddad got in on the mix, emailing YouTube links of Hindustani classical music all the way from India for us to play for his firstborn great-grandson. So now it was my turn. And it's weird, because I definitely thought about it before the Biggie shirt came into play. Like, man, I can't wait to play my son his first tribe joint. I dropped some outcast on him one day. But I hadn't done it or really thought specifically about when and where to start until that shirt just landed in his drawer. And I was like, oh, we here already? Every time my son hears a new song, he's got this habit of looking at me through the most earnest eyes and asking, What's that song about? What's this song about? I think it's about respect. It's all about respect. Here. Okay. Thank you. It's almost like a question he's really asking. His daddy explained the world to me. What you want to hear? Right here. Maybe by the time he's able to hold a conversation for longer than two minutes, I'll have found the words to explain why Biggie is complicated in more ways than just his internal rhyme schemes. Right now, the flow is just too cold. Literally. What's up, Rodney? What's up, Sid? How you doing? I'm good. I'm fine. You sound down bad. Why? Are you sick? I'm very sick, yeah. 
your kid gets a cold, he's your cold too. Yeah, man. He 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 brought home something called RSV. Like you know all of the new wave uh cold and flu um viruses when you have <laughs> when you have a oh, toddler cuz cuz they oh bring them home like every other week, man. Rappers been proclaiming themselves the illest since the beginning of rhyme. Illmatic, sick with it, flu season. Now, I don't know the etymology of the slang, but nursing my unting cold since the pandemic got me to thinking of it as a survival metaphor. In order to stay alive in this sick world, you got to become the illest. And nothing's iller than being a hip-hop dad. You're tasked with raising the next generation without dooming them to repeat your destiny. We're supposed to be thinking about this kind of stuff all the time, and we do, but it doesn't mean that having kids doesn't give you even more cause to think about it, you know, in yeah, a deeper way. it takes way. on a whole new meaning, a new life. Yeah, lens. man. You know, you start analyzing, like, how did I become the man that I came to be? And for me, man, I had to realize, like, a lot of it is due to the music that I grew up loving, you know what I mean? If you see the flaw in that, how are you trying to avoid that? Uh, I mean, I feel like that's a really big question to start on. That's kind of where I am with it. Yeah, because truth is, I got a whole lifetime of rap and bullshit to infect him with. And ain't no vaccine for that. I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. And from NPR Music, this is Louder Than a Riot. On every episode this season, we tackle one unwritten rule of hip-hop that affects the most marginalized among us and holds the entire culture back. And one that a new generation of rap refuses to stand for. All season long, we've been looking inward at how a culture created by the marginalized became such a marginalizing force to so many within it. At times, it's even caused me to question myself. Because ain't no way to truly interrogate misogynoir and hip-hop without men taking some accountability. For the past, but especially for the future. So we don't turn our sons into survivors and perpetrators of the same ill fate. So this episode is going to be a little different. Part meditation, part conversation. Between me and my former selves. And a few folks thinking seriously about beats, rhymes, and life. On this episode, rule number nine. Like papa, like son. Do you think this is a happy song or a sad song? Happy, sad. Happy song and a sad song. You think it's happy and sad? You think Biggie's happy and sad on this song? Yeah. Really? Of all the hoods rap prepared me for, fatherhood ain't one of them. Dad, do you know what cold water and hot water do? What do cold water and hot water do? Cold water and hot water make warm water. Oh, that's kind of like happy and sad. If you're happy and sad, you're just kind of in the middle, huh? I've loved hip-hop for most of my life. It's been my livelihood for nearly half as long. I make a living by paying critical attention to the culture. But something about becoming a dad in the last few years, it pulls some of the wax out my ears. I hear rap differently now. 
Multiply that times two, because about a year ago, we added a daughter to the mix. Hip-hop heads, you know we tend to obsess over our daughters. Like Chris Rock joking about a dad's only job being to keep your daughter off the pole. Or T.I. confessing to going on his teenage daughter's gyno appointments just to make sure her hymen was still intact. When it comes to those baby girls, man, the patriarchy don't play. Meanwhile, we raise our sons to be as bad as dear old dad. So here I am trying to grapple with all that. But here's what I really want to know. How young is too young to begin talking to my son about rap? What are you talking about? Do you know what the song is about? Yeah. What? Music. The song is about music? Yeah, the song is about music. What's he rapping about? He's rapping the presents. He's rapping the presents? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> It's kind of like deciding the right time to tell your kid the truth about Santa or sex. By the time my dad worked up the nerve to talk to me about the birds and the bees, I'd already memorized two live crews, We Want Some Pussy. And the way my dad talked about sex, using the clinical verb insert to describe the act, was not the way Luke and them talked about it. My dad and I didn't even live in the same house. Ice Cube, Too Short, Scarface. Them niggas lived in my head rent-free. They were the rappers who raised me. Especially when it came to how I thought about girls and eventually women. Two live crew, bro. Like, I remember, like, 80-something, you know, hey, we want some mm, uh. Exactly. That's K.S.A. Lehman, a black literary genius. And not just because the MacArthur Foundation says so. He's written a lot about growing up hip-hop in the South. So I had to holler at him. I went to the concert. I knew that shit was foul. I knew it was foul. I knew that shit was Man, foul. Man, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. You went to a two live I went crew to concert two live at crew what concert age? in like 87, fam. It was two live wow. crew. It was too short. Um, okay. And, and I was going through puberty. Like, I knew that the shit they were saying about women was fucked up. I knew it was mean. And I knew they couldn't mm. rap. But I also knew at 12 and 13 <laughs> that the fucking album cover made my body feel things. And when they performed at Jackson, they had them dancers on stage, yeah. like real live grown women shaking their ass. Like, and then these men are talking about how these grown women ain't shit. There's, there's a hmm. dissonance there. But I think bodily what you feel is, yo, this is mean. And like, why does my body like like it? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's what I felt. Two live crew normalized things for us that shouldn't have been normal at any age. Before I knew anything about the wild shit that could go down at high school skip parties, Two Live inducted a generation of black boys into rape culture with the introduction of running trains. Me and my homies like to play this game. We call it Amtrak, but some call it the train. We all would line up in a single file line and take our turns at waxing girls behind. While trying to work all this out in my head, Sid interviewed me a couple of times. I want to go back to that feeling in the moment of discovering sex through through media. Like, the idea that there was a curiosity about it, but there was also, like, a shame to it and, like, a taboo to it. And for real, she asked me some hard questions. Questions I really had to marinate on. As you were 
learning through Two Live Crew what the birds and the bees were way before you were learning it in school or by any of your elders or anything like that, there you were you picking up on the degrading nature of it, or were you just intrigued by the sensationalism? Like when did when did you notice that it has this derogatory tone towards women? I don't know. I think something inside of you relays that even even off top. I think though, in terms of what really becomes more foundational for me, is not even just the sexual aspect of what I'm hearing in the music, but the way masculinity is being defined, right? Like, you know, when I start to think about some of my favorite early rappers, whether it's like Ice Cube or um, I was a NWA fan early on too, the masculinity was hyper. It was extreme. Yeah, I learned a lot from my rap dads. How to mask, how to suppress, how to conceal and carry all the vulnerabilities that might be seen as signs of weakness. I'm kind of like a softy, you know what I'm saying? I'm a, like, in the words <laughs> of my boy Lathan, you know, like, I'll fight you, my nigga, but like, I'm a soft-ass nigga. See, I can relate to you on when you talk about growing up and feeling like, at least in comparison, that you are soft or were soft. Yeah. Like, I felt that in comparison to my dad, who, in his own way and language, was basically telling me that. <laughs> right. Definitely in comparison to every most of my favorite rappers. I, I remember Will Smith being an early favorite. And I don't know, I took a certain comfort in him because he seemed like he had the same level of softness, I guess, maybe. <laughs> I didn't really have a language for it at that time, but... You know, by the time it's like, you know, adolescence, it felt like wherever I was in the world, I needed to carry myself a certain way. I want to dig into that, like how rap shaped your perceptions of manhood, like what it meant to be a black man. So, I mean, take me back to that. This was the crack era. This was the the mass incarceration era. This was the war on drugs era. And... Uh, this was also the era when they were always like, you know, black men are an endangered species. It just felt like you had to be ready for something, a war, even if you lived in the suburbs. Like, mm, yeah. you, you had to be ready, yo. When you stepped out the door, you had to have it that pose. Like you had to have your everything together, you, you know, so you didn't have to be tested. Because mm-hmm. reality was going to test you in some kind of way. And so that's really what shaped and defined masculinity in, in that era. Every generation of black men has to redefine masculinity all over again. The hand-me-downs from my daddy's and granddaddy's past, they never seemed to fit quite right. My generation overdid it. We took that black exploitation era machismo, added guns and gangster grills, and a fascination with pimping, pushing, and playing, and packaged it for mass consumption, never once realizing we were the product the entire time. Hypermasculinity became a shield and sword black men carried to ward off 400 years of fear, oppression, desperation. But when you weaponize yourself for protection 24-7, you end up causing the most harm to the ones closest to you. 
even yourself. So if you had to have a metaphysical armor, you had to be ready for war, you had to always be ready for anything, how did that affect your relationships with women? For me, it seemed cooler to not be in relationship, but to um, still have physical relationships. It didn't seem cool to have emotional relationships. I can remember this one New Year's Eve, and I was going to get the car. But I remember the girlfriend that I had at the time wanting to, to hang out, wanting to do New Year's Eve together. Mm-hmm. And me being much more interested in hanging with the fellas, which <laughs> to my adult mind is <laughs> like so ludicrous. I'm I can't getting imagine. this image of teenage Rodney being a fuck nigga, which is real <laughs> funny to think about. I, I love that. I love having the image of Mr. Stoic Green Tea Rodney being just ain't shit to his teenage girlfriend. Um, but outside of that, I think it's so interesting the lessons you were learning and how you <laughs> the lessons you were learning from your friends, from from music. Mm. But was there ever a point? Did you ever have kind of like a eureka moment where you realized that some of these lessons are harmful or were harmful? That came uh, maybe a, a few years later. And it's funny, there's an album around that time, too. It ends up being the uh, third De La Soul album, Balloon Mind State. Ego trip. Ego trip. It, came, it came out at a very pivotal time for me. Ego trip. Ego tripping down the You know, I was fresh out of high school and exploring the world and myself in ways for the first time, you know, you try on clothes that might not fit, you know what I'm saying? And it Mm -hmm. takes you a while to figure out um, how to be and to remind yourself who you are. And yeah, I think that album was one of those that kind of helped me to deflate. I don't know. I wasn't, that wasn't ego. Just deflate that bloated sense of self. Right. Who you thought you were supposed to be. Exactly. Who I thought I was supposed to be, the lifestyle that I was attempting to live out because because it sounded so good in the music. I mean, I think every kid should have that experience and some have it in their their gap year. You know, I guess that was my gap year. It was it was a a, a really hip hop gap year. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I went to the Navy and got kicked out, but you know, that was that was kind of... So, wait, 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 wait. So, after high school, you went to the Navy, got kicked out? Yeah, I did. When you graduate high school without a plan, there's one or two places you might land. Jail or the military. Joining the Navy was supposed to be my great escape. A way to run from responsibility and expectation and all the other black, lower-middle-class hopes and post-civil rights dreams the generation prior had invested in me. They say the universe is so vast that we all have alternate versions of ourselves floating out there. I found mine drowning at the bottom of a 40-ounce bottle when I was 19. He was everything I wasn't at the time, unleashed and unashamed. I dubbed him C-Mike. 
my hip-hop alter ego, the dude I became once I was finally out of my mama's house. I still wasn't old enough to drink or think straight, but I could legally buy a box of Newports, vote for a doobie-smoking president who claimed he never inhaled, and sign my life away to Uncle Sam. They stationed me on an aircraft carrier of 5,000 men. The Pacific Ocean was our hot tub, and every dock from San Diego up the coast to Bremerton, Washington, was our playground. We got paid to chalk and chain fighter planes, but we clocked way more hours as hip-hop journeymen. Fishing out the hardest bars and deciphering rhymes was our closest thing to therapy. I came up on loot the day I discovered Cool G Rap's illest line. Snitches get stitches, bitches that act snotty inside the party, even the hotties get turned to bodies. My best friends were ex-dope boys, second chance delinquents, teenage fathers, stuck in that liminal space between adolescence and accountability. A space black boys ain't granted for long. Detroit niggas, St. Louis niggas, East Texas niggas, Birmingham, D.C., Tennessee, Mississippi, and Atlanta niggas, all bonded over Snoop and Dre weed anthems, bitches ain't shit ideology, and thug life doctrine. We were politicians, we were philosophers, we were more liquor guzzlers. We wasn't shit. I stumbled back to the boat more times than I can remember blacked out. Fragile egos took some of us out before our discharge date. A homie wound up in the brig when too much shit talk over a spades game brought the knives out. And I fell asleep in my rack way too many cold nights, pumping Sade through my headphones and tucking my feelings under the covers so nobody could hear me humming, love is stronger than pride. So, how did you get kicked out of the Navy? (laughs) I got kicked out of the Navy for the most hip-hop shit ever, probably. Uh, Fitting. Especially in the, in the era in which I got kicked out. Mm. Uh, it was for smoking weed. Oh, my God. Rodney. <laughs> yeah. I popped a piss test. Why have we never talked about this before? Um, For real. I don't know. It, it never came up. I don't. I've seen turnt Rodney. I want to see, like, high-dosed Rodney. Nah. I, I stopped smoking weed not too not too long after I, I got kicked out of the Navy. Not because of that, but I don't know, man. It's, it just stole some of the joy out of it for me. I, I became one of those paranoid weed smokers after that. The stamp on my discharge papers read other than honorable. I got kicked out of the Navy because I got real good at pretending I didn't give a fuck. Something about that masquerade of not caring felt like the closest thing to freedom for a younger me. Remember that scene in Juice when Tupac surprises Omar Epps at his locker? I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck about myself. Look, I ain't shit. I ain't never gonna be shit. And you less of a man than me, so as soon as I decide that you ain't gonna be shit. The thing is, unlike Tupac's character, I really thought I was special. White people have been telling me my whole childhood that I was different. I didn't know that was just cold for non-threatening. But now, here I was getting kicked out the Navy, like a nigger, with the hard ER. A threat to the establishment, other than honorable. For me, there was some honor in that. Never mind that I barely saved a dime or that I was going back to my mama's house empty-handed. 
At least Ice Cube wouldn't think I was a sellout now. After a year of living recklessly, my wake-up call came somewhere between Oakland and Atlanta on a four-day Greyhound bus ride back to reality. Listen to your radio. I ask you to put your headphones on. De La Soul's Balloon Mind State album was the wake-up call in my headphones the whole way home. Tell me more about that. What songs specifically? Oh, uh, man. Probably, um... I Am, I Be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a really powerful song on that album. I Am... I am Pasta Noose. I be the newest generation of slaves here to make tapes about record execs. The pile of revenue I create, but I guess I don't get a cut because my rent's on I don't know, that's such a man. And the sample on that song is very haunting. Who departed life just a little too soon? It didn't see me grab the plug tune fame as we go a little something like this. Look, ma, no It was just like I had lived this, this fantasy version is really carefree I don't give a fuck version maybe I needed to to live that but it was also a version of me that in a lot of ways embodied a lot of what I'd learned through the music in terms of how to be (laughs) a young black man and that shit didn't work in real life I look back at that year and I just see myself acting out in ways that mirrored a lot of the models of manhood and masculinity that I had loved growing up in terms of how they acted toward women, in terms of how they acted toward other men sometimes, and in terms of how they acted toward themselves, you know that self-denial and that kind of thing. If my first dance with adulthood was awkward, it also laid the groundwork for a future where that experience and my love of hip-hop will come full circle. I go to my chocolate chip cookies. Oh, man, that's going to be so good. The chocolate chip cookies are done. Now let's put them in the oven. Okay. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch.
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So now I can't breathe fire. Now you can't breathe fire? No, because my nose are running. Oh, maybe you can turn the runny nose into fire. Um, Do you think dragons get runny noses? Um... My three-year-old son is starting to exercise the power of his imagination. One second, he's a dinosaur, roaring and running through the kitchen with his arms outstretched. The next, he's making invisible cookies only he can see in a bathroom drawer he calls his oven before serving them up with a plastic spatula. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is tasty. I love your skillet chocolate chip cookie recipe. Mmm, wow. How did you learn that word? Um, um, uh, I was just making. You were just messing around? And you it's coming this? in. Mm. What can we make next? Hmm, what can we make next? It's just child's play. And I try to encourage it because I know that conjuring up a new sense of self or remixing your identity, it won't always be that easy especially when the person you once imagined yourself to be is failing you. You can start over, but once you've grown, you never get to start from scratch. Instead, it's more like a process of constant revision. That idea is something Kiese leans on in his writing and in his life. Before you can have a revision, you have to have a, a vision. You know what I'm saying? So you were talking about like, you know, the things we don't want to be replicated, but a vision is is equally interested in what we do want to be replicated. You know what I'm saying? And often that vision is very stringent. My initial vision of who I want to be, it's like it's not a human. It's not someone who can feel and think and breathe messily. But then I'll have to push back on that vision and be like, well, like, is that who I actually want to be? Well, actually, I want to be someone who is in the world, sensuous, sensory, but causing as little harm as possible. You know what I'm saying? People always Mm. talk about like the carbon footprint. Like, yeah, okay, but I want to talk about the fucking like harm footprint. And when I really started to really think about who I wanted to be, I had to contend with a lot of the fuck shit that I have done to myself. And mm. definitely a lot of fuck shit I've done to people who loved me in spite of the, 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 the person that I am. Part of revision for me is just actually sitting in some of the harm I've done, but also you can drown in that too. So that's why I'm saying it's really important to think about who you want to be as opposed to like who you don't want to be. Like, I don't want to be harmful, but the harder question for me, Rodney, is like, who do I want to be out in the world? The act of reshaping my own hip hop identity started in earnest maybe around the time I settled into my career as a working journalist. I became music editor of an Atlanta All Weekly the same year that T.I. got busted on federal gun charges. The same month that DJ Drama Studio got raided by federal agents. The director Byron Hurt dropped his documentary Beyond Beats and Rhymes that year too. It was my first comprehensive look at how misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia became pillars of rap's toxic culture. It has this classic scene where Buster Rhymes promptly exits the studio 
when Byron starts asking him about homophobia in hip-hop. Sometimes homo? Yeah. As you talking about? Yeah. I can't talk to you about that. Why not? Because I... I mean, with all due respect, you know what I mean? I ain't trying to offend nobody. It's my cultural, what I represent culturally, doesn't condone it whatsoever. So I'm slide. I'm being allowed. All right. Boy, it's well, let me just ask you this, boss. Let me just ask you this. Do you do you think that a gay rapper would ever be accepted oh, wow. in hip hop culture? the Henny and then song. Say the word and we're gone. We covered Byron's film, T.I.'s trial, Drama's arrest, and Nelly's tip drill backlash that year. Matter of fact, we covered so much hip hop that the editor in chief took me out to lunch one day to complain about all the rap and rappers taking over his music section. You're you're covering it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, how is the messages you're getting from the music shaping the work you create off of it? I guess I started to have a sort of a defensive posture around the culture and the music and wanting to make sure that by any means necessary, I could get some hip hop in the book because to me, that in of itself in a, in a white space was alternative, you know, even if it was black pop music, you know what I'm saying? So I think because of that, I probably had blinders on, like really big blinders to some of the stuff that you're you're talking about, like, you know, the the misogyny in the music. This was the, the advent of the comment section. And so all of a sudden now you had all of these white alt-weekly readers going in on the comments anytime we publish something hip-hop related. Oh, rap is this, and those black people, they don't know, this is no talent, and they're just gangsters, and the violence. And so all of the critique and criticism, when it's coming from outside of the culture, especially from from white readers and detractors, like it just makes you mad and 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 because they don't have the cultural wherewithal or the socio-political wherewithal or the historical wherewithal to be able to understand or contextualize this culture even in terms of the negative aspects of it everything they spew just sounds like racism (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) so it becomes really hard to be self-critical of your culture and your music in this environment where you're having to be so defensive about it all the time. The racial politics were thick, but the gender politics at play were becoming harder to defend, even in my own mind. I got serious issues with Black men of your peer group, um, mm. and I'm constantly trying to work through them. That's writer and cultural critic Jamila Lemieux. I think about this a lot. I'm 38, you know, so I'm not a young girl, but um, relative to a man, you know, who's in his late 40s, 50s, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like, it's not my peer. Mm-hmm. And I'm consistently just kind of shocked at how stuck some of these men are. When Jamila dropped the black-ass lie, her 7,000-pound essay in response to Dave Chappelle's comedy special, The Closer, man, it was bigger than Roxanne's revenge. I remember tweeting it out at the time and calling it required reading for straight black men or something like that. The first response I got was some bruh saying black men had no avenue to express our pain. 
I had to hit dude back just to ask, have you never heard of hip-hop? The story that we've always been sold about hip-hop was that that hip-hop is Black men telling their truth. Mm-hmm. Right? This is their side of the story. This is how they get to tell the world what they go through. Mm-hmm. And so for us to challenge that, we've been told we're challenging you all's ability to speak freely and talk about your experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, but what you all are saying is incredibly hurtful to us and right. about us. Right. You know, and so what does that mean? Are, am I to believe that we are so vile to them that we have somehow earned this loathing? Kind of like me, Jamila's formative years were shaped by rap in a lot of ways, too. Black Moon, Wu-Tang, and De La were some of her early favorites. And just as I was learning through the music how to carry myself, Jamila was picking up on how women were being perceived in it. I think rap taught me a lot about what it means to live as a woman. In what ways? What women are, how women are regarded, mm. you know, that women are secondary to men mm. in a very profound way, mm. that what they need, what they feel, what they experience is just simply not as consequential yeah. to the world as what men feel and desire. They talk about having endless access to women and choosing to mistreat them. Mm-hmm. And I just find that really curious because, like, if if most women had endless access to men, our our instinct wouldn't be, I want to abuse them. Yeah. But that's because we value men. We think of them as important people. I mean, Black women really, really, really value Black men in a very significant way. Said another way, Black men don't really, really really value black women not in the same way not until we're good and ready until we have a reason maybe even until we have a kid and it's hard for me to say that out loud because I don't want it to be true even if there are plenty examples throughout this whole season that keep proving it is true and behind everything Jamila's saying I can almost hear her asking me why are you just stepping up to the plate And why are you talking to me about it? Toward the end of our convo, she made that question plain. Have you thought about how hip-hop makes women feel? Have you given it any thought? Being a Black man and often working at white publications where hip-hop wasn't a priority, I've often found myself feeling the need to defend the culture but I also would often have times when I was alone in a car riding and listening to music where I would just be like man (laughs) when I didn't have to explain anything to anybody else or excuse anything Mm -hmm. uh, away and it was just me sitting with it I would be like man this, this shit is like inexcusable it's always felt like it's so big that it's almost like where can I begin other than with me and I guess that's why for me being a dad now I feel like my biggest project you know maybe my only project is to try to figure out how to raise a son who despite being exposed to a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. will have another alternative way to think about and be a man 
so he doesn't have to be that kind of man and, 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 and you know, model that kind of behavior or live it or, or, or pose as it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's a cop out, but yeah, I guess that's that's where I am with it. You know. As I was answering Jamila's question, something about it sounded weak, even to me. Maybe the realization was hitting me in the moment that focusing on the next generation is really just another way to pass the buck to the young bucks in the hope that doing so might make me look less guilty. But I can't blame my rap dads any more than I can blame myself, especially at my big age. They say misogyny is rooted in hatred. I never thought of myself as a hater, least of all of black women. I've loved them, been loved by them, in one regard or another for my entire life. That love nurtured me even when I didn't fully love myself. But I've also loved hip-hop with my whole entire soul. And I never saw those two things in such stark conflict until recently. It's forced me to consider my own complicity. I thought about how I've contributed to Massage Noir in ways I didn't realize as a writer and editor who sometimes wrote pieces under the guise of celebrating women in rap that only painted them further into a corner. A hoteping before hotepism with profiles that objectify women sexually or moralized over them exercising their own brand of sexual agency. From poking problematic fun at Sierra's goodies to think-piecing on Trina's pleasure principle by placing my own disapproving gaze front and center. Putting ideas like this into the world that influenced the way people read the art and actions of black women caused a particular kind of harm that's worsened as women have come to dominate the genre. And it would be hypocritical of me to ask why that is without questioning myself first. It's constantly a process. Yeah. It's constantly, uh, it's a negotiation. And I think that in general, I mean, I think Black people have negotiated a lot to to love hip-hop. There's this adherence to, you know, white male patriarchy that is deep in some of our men. I mean, hip-hop is hyper-capitalist. It's, it's about, you know, who's got the biggest bank account, who's got the biggest watch, who's the most visible. That's where success and, and freedom are measured. And so instead of searching for a version of revolution that includes all Black people, they're thinking of, of how they get to live and be like white men. The fact that much of mainstream rap for so long lost or altogether lacked any kind of real intersectional come-up feels like a major fail. Instead, we became a culture of exclusivity and exclusion, a billionaire boys club, corporatized and commodified to death. Operating under the crooked American system too long. Outcast, pronounced outcast. What Jamila said reminded me of a line from an old Outkast album I still bump religiously. It comes near the end, like a fresh sprinkling of Southern playalistic critical race theory, after nearly 60 minutes of Big and Dre's post-adolescent pimping and posturing. If you think it's all about pimping hoes and slamming Cadillac doors, you probably a cracker, or a nigga that think you a cracker, or maybe just don't understand. 
When Dungeon Family Sage Big Rube said that on Cast' 94 debut, it literally took me years to understand. Rube was critiquing capitalism, or the crooked American system as he called it. But he was also calling out black men and our undying allegiance to it. Being a big old pimp became the modern day remix on the slave master, but in blackface. Even the countercultural stereotypes we claimed as uniquely our own were just spinoffs of our regularly scheduled programming. And like Audre Lorde said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. What we need are some tools that see racism and misogynoir as flip sides of the same oppression. But it's hard to construct that future when the toolbox you're working from is a hand-me-down. Uh, Z is for Zebra. All right, Ian. Next, tomorrow we read a story, okay? I want to read that story tonight. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from The Run-Through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. What are you working on? My computer. Because I need to work. Why do you need to work? Because I need money. (laughs) You need money? Yeah. I've come to terms with the fact that I don't have a lot of things I can offer my son. I won't die with an absurd amount of material wealth to bequeath him. I can't pass down any sort of athletic prowess that'll help him excel in sports. Even when I was a straight-A student and one of the smartest kids in my class, math stayed kicking my ass. There just ain't a lot of things I have to give, other than my love of music. It's the only language I've ever been fluent in. The only tongue that's native to me. 
is still the most revolutionary art form in my lifetime, even though my relationship to it might be way more complicated now. At this point, my legacy is old baggage. It's full of dusty records and dustier ideals I picked up through my dad, my rap dads, and all my old homies about how to embody manhood. Is that what it means? Because, you know, best means favorite. There can only be um, one best friend. Um, there's going to be two best friends. There can be two best friends? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess a lot of people Can I do what, three? Yeah, you're still three. So does that mean you get three best friends? Yeah. Okay, who are your three best friends? Tell me. My relationship with rap nowadays, um, it's a lot like my relationship with black men in general. I call few friends and call on those actual friends even less than that. As men get older, our connections to other men become less tangible. We get busy with life's responsibilities, building a career, raising a family, hiding from our emotions. We get hard, or try to, to steal ourselves, not just against the outside world, but from our inner selves too. When I was young, Nah. Me and my niggas bonded over hip-hop, memorizing explicit lyrics, reciting raps in the mirror like we wrote them. That shit was a release. But I stopped memorizing lyrics a long time ago. I don't dance in the mirror no more. And the only raps I occasionally recite are the ones that make me feel like I'm C-Mike again. I never heard music the same after that but maybe because I never had friends who made me feel music quite like that again either. It's one of the last things Kiese and I talked about before we hung up. And I had friendships with men in ways that I never have had since, mm. you know, mm -hmm. like really deep, really deep friendships. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in a lot of ways, I didn't realize until a long time later that in some ways the end of that year and, and leaving that environment, there was a mourning associated with the end of these wow. relationships with men that I really love because I knew that probably would never happen again. And so I connect a lot of that with hip hop as well, because everything that was coming out at the time that was like soundtracking the, the year for me. But yeah, I, f I found that trying to form those kind of relationships since then or or even admitting there was a craving to have that those kind of relationships. Yeah. It was almost like I couldn't admit from to myself for a long time that was something I needed or that, that I missed right. about that period in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even when we were doing things that we shouldn't have been doing Absolutely. together, right? Absolutely. You know what I mean? Oh, God, bro. Like, that's so sad to say. I don't, I, I have boys, but all of those relationships are virtual. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, even pre-COVID, I, I still played a lot of basketball. Part of that was because, like, that was a community of mostly black men, right? I mean, basketball gave us an excuse to touch. Basketball gave us mm -hmm. an excuse to commune and listen and be together. And then when my body broke... I I didn't I felt embarrassed to be around them because I got bigger. Um, I thought they would judge mm -hmm. me, you know. And honestly, fam, what you just said, like that, I haven't had real textured, present, loving relationships with brothers like that I see every day or every week 
in yeah. decades and it's and it's terrible wow. and it's really terrible and I, and I miss it mm. really bad but I'm scared to like I don't even know you know there's not a tinder for that there's not a fucking like grinder for like that you know what I'm trying to say like I don't know do I go on there and be like uh I miss niggas like any niggas want to any niggas want to come over here and, like you know what I'm saying like come to my crib we can just like you know be niggas like <laughs> but that's what I want but <laughs> like but I I don't know how to do it and I'm scared but like a lot of men are feeling that bro like I I you know in listening you can hear people talk like talk about like a kind of loneliness and I think Part of that is that we just don't, some of us don't make space to to touch and commune with, with other brothers and, and our friends. Mm. For me, like my friendships with my brothers, like that was, that, that was love. But what did we do in those groups? We talked about hip hop. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yep. like hip hop right at the core, in addition to being all of the fucked up things that the nation is, like mm-hmm. there's a, there's a textured love in there for me that I have not found anywhere else yet. Hey, Ori, who's your best friend today? Uh, you are my best friend. I'm your best friend? Yeah. For real? <laughs> you are my best why, friend. Why is daddy your best friend? Because. When my son calls me his best friend, I always think about how that was a parental no-no to the generation before me. Our parents were not our friends. Didn't want to be, didn't pretend to be. And they had special ways of reminding us of that fact if we slipped up and forgot. But when he calls me his best friend now, part of me thinks about all the people I called friends growing up, all the rappers who schooled me coming up, all the people I looked to, even more than my parents, to give me the game. I think to myself, him seeing me as a friend might not be the worst thing in the world. Teaching my son how to listen critically and empathically, how to hear the love and the lack in the music, how to distinguish the good shit from the bullshit, even when the bullshit is that shit that feels like the work, necessary work, but it's also the fun. And in the right hands, maybe rap can be a tool for teaching my son something that it's taken me this long to learn. Long as he never stops asking that question, what's this song about? Looking forward, what questions do you have for your son, even if he can't answer them right now. Oh man, um, what questions do I have for Ori? <laughs> uh, I'm really curious what questions he has for me, but yeah, maybe we're not quite there yet. Probably be a bunch of hard questions. I'm gonna struggle to answer just like these. I I, I would love to hear him talk about music and why he likes who he likes, you know. But, yeah, I I hope that I can be a a, a decent model in terms of that kind of stuff, even as I'm learning it myself. I see a softness in my son. I mean, the kid's three years old. He's supposed to be soft. But sometimes I see that softness and I'm kind of embarrassed by it. Maybe because it reminds me how soft I am. And how I spent half my life trying to camouflage that shit. But I look at him and I see the kid that cries too long when he's hurting inside. I see him and I remember the look my dad used to give me when I did that. I tried to give him that look, but man, my son just keeps on wailing. The look doesn't work on him either. And I secretly take pride in that. 
even as I fight back the urge to strip it away. I don't want to make him hard. I don't. Not too hard. Hard enough to survive, but soft enough to live. Without being afraid or unforgiving or dead. And I hope music can be a lifeline somehow. I know this problem is bigger than my one son, but it feels like the most meaningful work I can do. Something I can be about rather than just talking about. Something I can hold myself accountable for. Truth is, I need work too. And I'm going to mess up while trying not to mess him up. I definitely have to unlearn some things about who I am and the person I imagine him to be. I'm also trying to leave myself open to whatever it is he has to teach me. Even if it's how to be softer. Because same way I gave my son blood and breath, he gonna get these beats and rhymes. Because we black. And this rhythm, it's all we have that couldn't be stripped from us or stolen away. And he deserves every bit of that. It's his without asking. But he deserves to have it in a way that doesn't require him to lie, die, or cause harm to himself or anyone else. That's the thing I've always loved about rap. It's a self-regulating culture. We determine what's cool, what's corny, what's cap. We set the tone, take the temp, and tell the time. That means there's space for the next 50 years of hip-hop to be a jamming-ass course correction, a counter-revolutionary remix, intersectional, and liberatory as all hell. Me and you, your mama and your cousin, too. I think that's that texture love that Kiese is talking about. And I want to give that to all our children. You had fun playing soccer with Elias today? Yeah. Elias is going. Elias is going home to sleep. Yeah. And good. snuggle. He's, who's he going to snuggle with? He's going to snuggle with her daddy. Who are you going to snuggle with? I want to snuggle with daddy. Oh, okay. All right, y'all. Next week is the last episode of the season. And we're confronting the rule at the root of it all. Two women can always find a common ground. I think it's the testosterone and the ego of the men to make women feel like you got to be the only one. You the only one on top. There can only be one queen bitch. That's why the girls be arguing all the time. What happens when the same forces, putting a squeeze on the girls' gays and theys, come for our show, too? That's next time on Louder Than a Riot. Louder Than a Riot is hosted by me, Rodney Carmichael. And me, Sydney Madden. This episode was written by me, and it was produced by Sam J. Leeds. Our senior producer is Gabby Bulgarelli. And our producers are Sam J. Leeds and Mono's son, The Racing. Our editor is Soraya Shockley, 
with additional editing by Sam J. Leeds. And our engineer is Gilly Moon. Our senior supervising producer is Cher Vincent. Our interns are Jose Sandoval, Teresa Shea, and Pilar Galvan. And the NPR execs are Keith Jenkins, Yolanda Sanguini, and Anya Grunman. Original theme by Casa Overall. Remix by Suzy Analog. Scoring by Suzy Analog and Casa Overall. Our digital editors are Jacob Gans, Dayu Tyler Amin, and Sheldon Pierce. Our fact checker is Greta Pittenger. Special thanks to my wife, Nikki, for being my constant sounding board. And my son for letting me follow him around with the microphone for the last couple of months. And my mom for putting up with the teenage me. I think we made it. If you like this episode and you want to talk back, hit us up on Twitter. We're at Louder Than a Riot. And if you want to email us, it's louder at npr.org. From NPR Music, I'm Rodney Carmichael. I'm Sydney Madden. This is Louder Than a Riot. I think I figured out what that crunchy sound was on my end. What, what, what? Doritos. I think it was, I think it was me rubbing my chin, like the beard, the hair on my chin. My bad. Okay, Billy Gro Gruff. All right. <laughs> Who did you call me? <laughs> Billy Go Gruff. Can y'all not hear me? Can y'all Billy hear me? Billy Go Gruff. Yeah, yeah. No, we hear you. All right. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the NPR Wine Club. Get the world of wine delivered to your door. When you join the NPR Wine Club, you'll receive the stories behind every bottle and favorite NPR shows and personalities arriving in liquid form, like Weekend Edition Cabernet and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Zinfandel. The NPR Wine Club is a delicious way to support NPR's programming. If you're 21 or older, uncork a special offer at nprwineclub.org podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.